So this week we have an interview with Katerina Kelly about her new book, Soviet Art House, Len Film Studio under Brezhnev, which is recently published by Oxford University Press. And this is an interview I recorded last week, actually, for in, it was the sixth and last event of a series I've been running at the Russian East European and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh called The Long Soviet 1970s. Um, so it was really nice to finally wrap up that series. And I learned a lot about the 1970s that maybe I'll, I'll discuss in the outro. Um, I should also tell listeners that this is the last podcast of the year. Um, I'm taking a hiatus for about probably two months. Um, and the reasoning is so I'll, you'll, you'll still have reruns. I'll probably I'll run reruns, but no new podcasts probably until the end of January, perhaps even early February. And the reason for that is I've been working on a documentary um, called Teddy Goes to the USSR, which is about a guy named Teddy Rowe who went to the Soviet Union in 1968 for three months. And I've been putting together a six-part documentary series about his travels and his observations and the relationship between Americans and their understandings of the Soviet Union and Soviet society as tourists. So um, the hiatus is going to give me an opportunity to finish up that series. So, um, so look, that's something for listeners to look out for. Probably I'm looking at a, a late January, perhaps early February release for that series as well. But just to, to get started on the subject at matter, I, you know, this, this interview is about Soviet films. So I wanted to ask you, Margaret and Rusana, you know, do you like Soviet films and, or movies in general? Well, I can say I love Soviet films. I mean, I think, I mean, I love film in general and it's actually a new uh interest of mine i used to never watch movies because i felt like too emotionally traumatized by them every single time i would watch but i finally understood like i learned the the technique of how to watch it or something i don't know through through consistent exposure and my friends really pressuring me into watching more movies <laughs> and also, my parents, every New Year, watching um, that movie with the Piat Minot, Piat Minot. Um, what's the one? Yeah, everybody watches that movie. For some reason, I'm blanking on it Maybe myself. I can't remember. There was... Probably, yeah. The one about... Yeah, the one where the guy goes to the wrong apartment. Mm -hmm. He didn't catch his flight to the one. Mm-hmm. Slökhim Param. yeah. What is the English? What is the called in English again? I can't read. Fuck it. I don't know. I can't remember what the You're hell. You're bad, Slavicis. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Well, we'll get into my <laughs> relationship with film in a minute. But okay. But Soviet Soviet film is like movies are one of the few products that we can take with us that that really transports us into another time. It's like one of the few unadulterated forms of art in terms of how it looks and sounds now and today and how it looked and sounded then it's like it feels like a raw way to experience uh society or culture or film or whatever it is that is the topic of the film like there's so much that can be said and shown in Probably, I would argue, one of the least speculative ways. There's room for interpretation as all art leaves, but, but, it, but you still get to 
see in a direct way the image, the face, the voice, the light, the, 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 the dynamic between people, the dialogue. Um, and so it just, movies are one of the few things where I can just tap into another brain, like this other mode of perception and just experience what it is the artist wanted me to in a way that, that I think with other forms of art, it's more personal. It's more about myself. And when I watch movies, it's less about myself and more about the content. The, the Soviet movie that, that I wanted, the, the New Year's movie, is The Irony of Fate, uh, which is the, this is the one I couldn't remember for some odd reason. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Right, because it, Ironia Sudbi или с легким паром has two names. Ah, right, right. So what about you, Rusana? Oh, I definitely, I definitely love movies and Soviet movies <laughs> in particular. I think if I'm addicted to anything, I'm addicted to TV shows and movies. Like, I could watch TV shows, yeah, to like, like as Margaret was saying, to get into this other reality and just turn off my brain and relax. So, you know, <laughs> to improve my emotional well-being. And I think my uh, journey with the Soviet movies started from that, right? We have these reruns of Soviet movies usually on holidays. So, for example, around the New Year's, you have like a certain repertoire of films that would be um, broadcast on the TV. So even today, like living, living in the States, I'd watch the same movies around the New Year's to have that new year's spirit or sometimes even when i'm feeling like i remember in the past like i would feel down and i would watch a soviet movie you know it doesn't right. matter I, I, n not any movie in particular just like a comedy like a classic comedy right um because and you know the reason why a lot of them are very uplifting like a lot of them right. are very like warm in a way I, I don't know how to like explain this affect in in another way right. they're like really warm like everyone is kind and smart it's just this like <laughs> you know do you have the same relationship to russian film contemporary movies no i don't think so well because like a lot of the soviet movies were shot in this um you know soviet realism right uh that this like i not not ideal, but like a better version of the Soviet reality. <laughs> you know, as Catriona Kelly is going to tell us, right? Like censorship, they wouldn't want to, they, they wouldn't, like the censors didn't want to like have movies where they would portray conflict in a school, yeah. like between teachers or students, da, 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 right? But but the films from like Russian films today don't give you those warm, fuzzy feelings like the Soviet films do? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, but yeah, but like, okay, so that's kind of like one side of the story. But then you have the Soviet art house, like really incredibly uh, like talented movies. And I think later on, um, I got into those kinds of movies that, um, you know, you appreciate it as art, not as like pop culture. Um, yeah. Anyways, but I also started experimenting with film myself. So I started making oh, right. 
ethnographic movies. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have an intimate relationship with film. What about you, Sean? Um, well, spoiler alert, I actually don't really like movies unless they're about superheroes. Um, listeners might know, uh, because I've, I think I've dropped hints here and there, that I, I'm a big lover of comic books. And so Marvel movies and Star Wars and all of this stuff, I'm, I watch over and over and over again. I actually don't really watch anything else. <laughs> um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not into like film. I'm barely into movies. I watch a lot of children's movies, but that's because of Zoya, uh, my daughter. Um, which I actually enjoy too, because they're right up there with, I think, you know, it, they don't, they're right up there with like the Marvel movies in terms of complexity. <laughs> so actually a lot of them are more complex than Marvel movies, but, but yeah, I really, I really love that, this kind of stuff. And the reason why is, um, besides, you know, my, my love of comic books aside, but when I was a kid, you know, you know, I went to see Star Wars in the theater. So it was like a big part of my childhood. I've been reading comic books since I've, I was 10. Um, and I used to dream about one, you know, can they make movies about, you know, Spider-Man? And now they actually are. And they're making good movies by, you know, comic book lovers standards. <laughs> and so for me, it's a lot of it is linked to this nostalgia of something like I was hoping would, would come and now, you know, I can watch these movies. Um, in terms of my, my like lackluster appreciation of film and cinema, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just, if I had a choice of watching like a movie I've never seen before and I don't know. Uh, listening to a uh, podcast. Well, I mean, no, if I, I mean, just keep with movies. Like if I had a choice of listening to, I mean, watching a movie I've never seen before or rewatching, I don't know. Doctor Strange, I'll watch Doctor Strange. It's like a default. So you're a rewatcher. I'm a rewatcher. Yeah, I'm a rewatcher. Hmm. Um, and what is it about new movies? What's the experience that you have when you do watch? Like, if you were to watch like a Soviet art house movie tonight, what do you think you would? It's like, it's like trying a new dish. It's a risk that Sean sure. doesn't yeah. want to take. <laughs> well, you know, and, and the movies that I've, the Soviet movies I've seen, which, you know, another spoiler admittance, um, uh, probably can, I can count on my one hand. <laughs> um, I like them all. I think they're, I think they're great. Um, but I just, in terms of my like, you know, relaxation, entertainment life, like that's just not what I'm, I'm, I'm into. It's kind of like a little too close to shitting where I'm eating mm -hmm. or something. <laughs> You're okay with your horizons where they are. I'm, I'm totally comfortable <laughs> with the, my horizons where they are. And I probably just scared off like a good percentage of <laughs> listeners right now because I'm, I'm so uncultured. <laughs> it's okay. Listeners. I love movies. <laughs> Rosanna loves movies. Yeah, so, so that that just that's a long way of going about saying it's really funny that I do these interviews about film because I honestly like don't, you know, it's not that I, I I'm not against it. I'm just not for it. You don't connect. Not, with not it. really. It just doesn't really move me. Mm -hmm. You know, 
hey, what can I say? I'm, I'm more moved by, I don't know, the Hulk than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Art. <laughs> You're such a weirdo, Sean. I'm going to say it on behalf of all of our listeners. So the superhero, so when you watch movies, it's like you are prioritizing like nostalgia, like you're just trying to like tap into that child version of yourself? I mean, not not consciously, but if I sit back and analyze, I think that's probably a lot of it. Yeah, though I, I do have to say there is, I, I have been having this weird experience and I think it comes from having a 10 year old daughter, like watching movies that I really liked as a kid and watching them now and realizing, holy shit, like these are so sexist and racist. <laughs> <laughs> that, and and th and that's a very strange experience too. Um, I've had that experience with a couple of movies where I'm just like, Ugh. so so those those movies are canceled. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so you know, I'm a dork. What can I say? So hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. Really appreciate everybody's support. And if you'd like to support the podcast, go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. And I should say, the more people who uh, become patrons, maybe I can give Rusana and Margaret some money for their efforts <laughs> participating in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so um, Rusana, why don't you introduce uh, Katriona? Katriona Kelly is Senior Research Fellow at Trinity College, University of Cambridge. She's the author of many books on Russian history and culture, including, amongst others, Comrade Public, The Rise and Fall of a Soviet Boy Hero, the prize-winning Children's World, Growing Up in Russia, 1890-1991, St. Petersburg, Shadows of the Past. Her new book is Soviet Art House, Land Film Studio under Brezhnev, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Katriona Kelly. You know, looking looking at your books, the wide breadth of your publications over the years, you know, I, I'm really struck by one thing, and I, I've thought this a long time about follow, from following your work is, you know, most historians, when they study an area or a subject, they mostly, for the most of their career, stay in their lane, right? They don't venture off. Like if you study the terror, you tend to publish mostly about the terror, or maybe you might deviate for similar periods, but. You know, you have this really like wide breadth of scholarship from books about advice columns to Pavlik Morozov to your book on children, churches, St. Petersburg, and now film. Can why, why such an eclectic body, eclectic body of scholarship? Well, I suppose in a way, I'd rather talk about what holds it together. And 
one way of doing that might be to think about um, what kind of issues these are. And I mean, the history of childhood, gender, which is something that I've worked on, um, various types of Russian regionalism, provinces. Indeed, I've seen Russia itself turn from somewhere which is very much a kind of, you know, blockbusting major power to somewhere which now is in uh, Barack Obama's rather offensive phrase, just simply a regional power. And I suppose what I'd like to emphasize is that I work on things which are significant but overlooked. And I think that has been a kind of unifying practice, if you like, in what I've done. So I have worked on microhistory as one way of putting it, case studies. They've tended just to grow into very big books because I've looked at the sort of ways in which that case study kind of embraces all sorts of other considerations that perhaps people might not sort of, I mean, also the way things link together is what interests me so that a case study can help you to show that areas which didn't seem to be kind of set up to, to inter intersect, in fact, do that. Um, so with the still cinema, I think I've, I've, what I've hoped to do is to show how it's related to a broader historical context as well, which I sometimes miss from books on cinema, although not all of them. I'm not kind of at all suggesting that I've come in adventitiously, as it were, and done this book on the cinema, and suddenly we understand a whole lot of things we never understood before, because that would be absolutely wrong. You know, let me ask you about the, the story you are telling in the context, because it is very much, a, a, a you know, I think you clarified it, like these case studies looking at these you know, issues really intensely and in how they fit within larger contexts. So given that, what is the story you're seeking to tell with the Soviet art house? Well, one of the things, I mean, okay, there's a first comment I could make, which is uh, Tolstoy's famous comment when he was asked about Anna Karenina. I mean, this book is not as large as one or two of the others, but, you know, still even lifting it with one hand is... So he is alleged to have replied, if I could tell you that, I'd need to write the novel again. Now, I think it would be a little <laughs> pretentious of me to sort of say that I'm a kind of Tolstoyan writer. But I think what I would say is that um, I'm kind of sort of interested in a, a number of things in this book. I think what I'd say is that, you know, state the blindingly obvious, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a book about a studio. And I think that that studio life is important because we really don't know a whole lot about studio life in late socialist studios generally. So what I've done is to take a, a film studio that's very well regarded for its output and sort of um, show it as a living network, if you like, um, a, a living organism. And from all kinds of points of view, I mean, everything from, you know, parties in the film processing workshop, which were rather notoriously loud and disruptive to the uh, disciplinary process of turning out to disputes in the editorial, kind of the arguments with the party when things get made. Um, so everything from the sort of end of Soviet film that's kind of more familiar, which would be to do with the obstructions to the process that are made by people along the line, to bits which are less familiar, which are kind of, you know, what you do when you can't find the right textile for a costume and you need something at, at short notice, which are probably more familiar to people in um, the international film industry, actually. And I think there is a sort of history of the um, Soviet film world to be told, which is about the, the kind of processes which happen um, in film industries everywhere. And I suppose another thing I'd say that unifies my work generally is I actually like to look at areas of Russia and indeed Soviet life, which have got parallels in other cultures. I mean, to sort of de-exoticize it. Do you have, a, after doing this study on Soviet film, do you have a different appreciation of it in terms of not just its product as as film, but in its in its how it's developed and how that development produces a certain type of product? 
there were two things that surprised me, I think, probably most. And one of them was the level of toleration and concern that people had for what they thought of as talented individuals. And I was surprised by how much talent mattered in the Soviet film industry. And that emerged not just in the discussions at Len Film, where I think it was exceptionally well-developed and people put up with some really quite uh, difficult behavior from some of the filmmakers working there. I mean, Viktor Sakhalov was a case in point. I mean, he was the kind of film director that had people regularly storm off set. And I think what happened is he just talked to people on the production line at Len Film the way that he'd heard people talking on the factory production line. And it was a lot of Fs and other words, um, kind of unmentionable talk. He very often lost it and started bawling people out. And I mean, he almost literally bit the carpet. I mean, if there had been a carpet, he'd have bitten it. Um, and so that was a kind of case in point. And I mean, regularly the party kind of meets and sort of says, oh, we've got problems. So, you know, it's another Victor Sokolov film and everybody kind of laughs. Um, and yet never is he actually taken off and, you know, told... I mean, there's one case when somebody else, well, two cases where people were brought in to re, you know, make the remake the film to the end because it had just reached a crisis point. But he keeps on making films, and I think that's very indicative. And the second thing that really surprised me, alongside that tolerance for creative people, was just how interesting the party archives were. Now, if I'd thought to, if I'd thought I'd say that sentence, I mean, you know, sort of starting to research this about seven years ago. Uh, I mean, I'd have told anybody who kind of raised that idea they were mad. And then it turned out they were actually kind of like a living diary of, of, of life in the, in the works, as it were. So the film factory in the most literal sense. And there was an awful lot of information about exactly the sort of production issues that are very difficult to find out about any other way. Definitely the party on the inside. I mean, the party is extremely different on the outside. So I'll get to that in a second. But with the interior world, one has to bear in mind that the party members are also part of the filmmaking process. And their objective is to, at least in part, to express solidarity with their colleagues. And it has to be said at this point that there is a really big problem because most younger filmmakers don't want to join the party. And they're quite bold about it. I mean, that quite surprised me as well to have, you know, a record of somebody being called into a party meeting and being asked, why don't you join the party? And it's not quite don't want to, but I mean, it's it's more or less, I mean, there were certain forms of words you could use. I don't think I'm mature enough for that yet. Um, but anyway, the answer is, however expressed, is very definitely no. And in fact, the people who belong to the party tended to be the ones who'd worked in TV beforehand, where there was much more of a Berufsverbot or requirement, I suppose. I mean, sort of a, a requirement that if you're in that particular profession, you you actually do belong. Can you go into that a little bit more? I'm kind of curious, like this relationship with the party. Is this, are these giving your statement about it being a living diary? Is that because of the party cell materials of the film studio? Or is it, is the party coming from the outside? How does that that work? There was a system of big meetings, so for notionally for all the members of the studio, so that's probably about a um, a bit more than a tenth, probably about fifteen percent of the of um, the entire kind of staff payroll. So three thousand five hundred versus four hundred, four hundred and fifty. Um, people could often not attend because they were out on a shoot. That was a per considered a perfectly kind of respectable reason not to come along, um, uh, which also might be seen as rather surprising. And so there are these sort of several times a year, these large meetings, then there are meetings for different subsections. So there's um, the different creative units. So the studio is divided into creative units like mini studios. So 
At some periods, they have their own party sections. Well, it, it sounds like, you know, because I, I, the reason why I ask this is because I'm, I'm working on, on my assumptions from, you know, before, which is, you know, there's this body called the party and it kind of directive, you know, directives come down from the top to, to kind of, you know, censor film, change film, influence its making. But the way you describe it, one could, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong or comment on it. And that is, it sounds like there's a bunch of little parties <laughs> within this larger body with all sorts of, you know, the, the lines are blurred, right? Between party, whatever, participation and artistic participation or even bureaucratic participation. And then also the, all of these groups have their own interests within the, the studio. I think that's very much the case. And what actually turns that into a very vexed problem is the 1970s drive for more rational planning and especially for more efficiency financial efficiency and production efficiency. So this is a sort of Soviet-wide drive, and it is accompanied by a demand of sort of, you know, better um, bangs the bucks, as it were, in the film industry generally. And um, eventually it leads to a process where what actually matters is making a film that lots of people will go to. And that affects the film studios, which prided themselves on quality film and um, a kind of artistic product, which were Len Film particularly, and um, Georgia Film is another example. That affected them rather badly because their viewing statistics started not to look very good compared with, I mean, you know, famous film that everybody probably has heard of is um, Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears. So that becomes the sort of model of a film. I mean, the fact that it gets a foreign film Oscar, of course, is absolutely the icing on the cake. And this is sort of seen as a film which is actually well received in some quarters, has a, a major foreign prize, and it's got Soviet audiences in in large numbers, and it's made foreign currency. I mean, you know, that's absolutely the model. And very few films are actually able to match, um, say, two of those criteria, let alone all of them. Um, and it increasingly becomes the sort of aim to make these high viewer figure films compete with TV. I mean, there were very famous Soviet directors. I mean, Yuri, um, sorry, Alexei German is a case in point who didn't get, you know, even up to average viewing numbers. And of course, that's partly because the Soviet film managers, so they start to sort of think, think about things like, you know, Hollywood producers, and they sort of think, well, this is a small budget movie and there's no point in showing it in a big cinema. Let's show it to the club circuit, which is often represented as censorship. And in a sense, it was. It was like... Again, going back to Tolstoy, it was the, the way that the Tsarist censors would allow his more inflammatory texts, such as the Kreutzer Sonata, to be published only in the collected works, because that meant that the, the common people couldn't get hold of them. So there is a censorship component there. But this is also seen to be to do with rational economic planning. So again, it's difficult to disentangle the situation. But as for the party directives, if I can just sort of, without I wanting to bend your ear too much, to say something quickly about that. I mean, Having been through a lot of these, in fact, I think I read most of my way through, um, you know, the major party meetings and the creative workers section and then some of the others for about 30 years. I mean, what I would say is that there was always an ideological beginning to these big meetings and it's um, highly ritualized. You know, these are the good films we've made. These are the films which are regrettable, don't live up to the sort of ideological artistic quality we want. And then it's often supported by, and you know, you have to think of this party directive, um, you know, on the improvement of the film industry. But 
the number of directives that came out, and they were almost always called on the improvement of the film industry. And you can imagine that you're kind of there in a film studio, oh, kind of, yeah, well, we know exactly what's going to be said. How many of these have we had before? So on top of that is kind of needed raids when sort of in a major kind of party and actually Gus Kinnor, so the state management figures, occasionally visit, which is very bad news. And then they kind of start haranguing the people in the studio. Sir Philippe Yermash, for example, turned up in 1975. He's the head of Gus Kinnor, so a really big cheese. And kind of says, you know, you lot, your filmmakers, but you need to look at this with the eye of a producer. So he uses the word producer in Russian. <laughs> and that sort of labels it very well. And there's an accompanying regional committee of the Communist Party meeting, which essentially presses the same, very much the same um, message home, but with more ideological input. So outside, I mean, I don't want to suggest that all relations with Gus Kinnor are like this. Um, actually, they got on very well with some film directors. Gleb Panfilov, who's a very good film producer, sorry, director, is um, a major favourite of Gus Kinnor. But um, on the other hand, you know, they do punish the studio as well as individual filmmakers. And I think that's something else that I would say that I brought out, which is relatively new to, I think, Western understanding, is that the studio got punished as well as the um, the individual filmmakers. So there's a sort of, in Russian, it's called Krugavaya Paruka, so sort of kind of group responsibility ethos for this, um, which is also financially, by the 1970s, is financially engineered also. Let, let's step back a bit and, and have you put Len Film in context with other film studios in the Soviet Union. Where did it stand in relationship within the larger um, film industry? Yes, well, some mathematics. It's the second biggest film studio in terms of numbers of employees and output right across the Soviet Union. So um, only must film is bigger, but must film is a lot bigger. So must film is at least twice the size of Len Film. And the other thing is there's no comparison in terms of budget because Musfilm basically is red carpet everywhere for them. And so Musfilm is the studio that sort of sops up the um, state commissions, so-called. So the sort of you know films where there's over budget, there's a very tight budget for Soviet films. It's quite difficult actually to get it extended. But if you make a film that's considered to be really kind of important, then it would be something like Sergei Bandarchuk's um, War and Peace. Um, you know, that was something like about three to four times the ordinary, ordinary budget for films. Uh, major war movies are another way, obviously, of getting financing. So Lenform's not getting that. So it means that it has to work with the resources it has. And one major implication is that uh, by and large, we're talking about what feel like small budget movies. And that starts to be a problem when it's kind of decided that technical resourcing is important to get audiences in. Um, so on the other hand, what we have is something which is, if you like, like independent US cinema um, or a lot of European cinema, which is that it's actually very interesting filmmaking and not necessarily something that, you know, is alienating the avant-garde. Um, in fact, it's quite difficult for them to get away with that. It, it's just kind of adventurous film. I mean, I suppose it'd be on the spectrum, Antonioni, Bergman, for example. Um, those are some of the heroes of Lenfilm film filmmakers. Now, Soviet film uh, in the post-war period really expands its production and numbers of film. It really becomes a popular mass-consumed art form. And 
as a result of this, there is a new generation of talent. And this is one of the things your, your book is focused on, on this new crop of young filmmakers who are entering the, the business in the 60s and into the 70s. Um, talk about the, the role of this of youth in this, this burgeoning uh, field of filmmaking. Yes, first of all, a bit of background. Almost no films managed to get re released in the post-war years. And actually, the other important thing is that Soviet studios are organized around major invariably male um, senior figures, so the so-called masters. And so what happens in the late 1950s, early 1960s is a, is a, a decision to fundamentally to revise that policy. So to bring in these creative units, which were actually not as important in all Soviet film studios as they were in Mosfilm and Lenfilm, for example, but um, it's considered to be a sort of pan-Soviet plan. So what happens is that um, these kind of sub-studios are set up when they do have major senior filmmakers kind of in charge. That was a sop to major senior filmmakers. But of course, it's partly a question of uh, not exactly divide and rule, but their um, power then starts to be on individual parts of the studio. They have perhaps less leverage at the level of the studio as a whole. And the units fairly quickly develop their own sort of individual face and kind of recruit the filmmakers they want. But there is definitely a push to recruit young filmmakers to the extent that um, it goes from a situation when if you'd graduated from state film school, so the geek in the late 1940s and 1950s, you probably spent your time in a documentary film studio. So you'd been trained to make feature films, but you just weren't being recruited. So some of those people start coming in. So they have filmmaking experience, but as it were, not in the right area. Um, and then they're also going and pulling in film directors, I mean, sorry, theatre directors and other sort of, you know, more or less anybody who has some kind of experience in making art with a collective. I mean, you know, a group. And so it's, it was important to kind of get people people in from, from areas like that. It doesn't affect the technical sides of filmmaking. So they were still kind of recruiting camera operators, for example, out of film school. Um, so it's not kind of you pick up a camera, you learn how to do it. So the sort of thing that's probably more common in the West. But anyway, that's what happens, a kind of rush of recruitment. Um, so the big sort of targets are set in the Khrushchev era. It's also very important, I think, that the Khrushchev era is one where youth mobilization is a hugely important drive generally. And often youth uh, culture is talked about in terms of sort of subculture, about leisure activities. I mean, I suppose one of the things I wanted to do in this book is to show that it was actually also about but transforming the work environment. They do have a life which is not just kind of sitting in cafes, but actually what they do in working hours during the day. And it's not at all boring because it's about arguments. Actually, in Len Film, there wasn't really a boundary between cafe life and working either because a lot of the work was in the cafe. So if it all stands too boring, then actually it wasn't. Given all of this, you have this new new crop of younger filmmakers who, of course, don't have the stature and the connections that the old guard does. So kind of walk us briefly through how a film gets made. Like what kind of hoops does one have to jump through to to get an idea to an actual product? OK, I mean, I went to tax everybody's patience with too detailed uh, <laughs> an account because it's uh, it's a couple of dozen, I would think, probably. And I mean, first of all, the ones that anybody would recognize from any film industry, um, you have to get your treatment. I mean, the um, Soviet film industry, it was called a proposal. I've tended to retain that word because 
a treatment and a proposal are not exactly the same. So it could be, if it was a well-known scriptwriter, it could just be sort of basically an idea on the back of an envelope. It might not even really much exist in written form. I mean, if you made your reputation, I mean, by that stage, the studio wanted to get you in. It was going to do everything to pave the way to sort of, you know, get you as a a lead scriptwriter there and they're freelancers. I think that's, again, something which is obvious maybe to people who worked on the Soviet film industry, but perhaps not so obvious if you haven't. Um, so they are selling their services around studios. There's a, com- a competition, a, c- a competitive market for, for, for good scriptwriters. It's always seen as the Achilles heel of the Soviet film industry. Um, and then after that, the script goes through various versions. I mean, it's normally at least two or three. And then it's sent off after that. So the bit that's less familiar from Western film industries is that after it's been accepted in the studio, which may include a vetting by the party in studio operation, but that tended to happen only if the film was about something sensitive, the life of Lenin, um, a war film, or something that was about a local factory and might sort of be seen to call into kind of impugn the honour of the, the, the local kind of party administration. Then the party at um, city level, so, um, you know, kind of above the studio, somewhere above the studio, has a special kind of um, cinema office that also views this. Then they sign off. It then goes to Gus Kinor, which is the state management body, and then it's reviewed there. Then if it's accepted, then the shooting script goes through very much the same process. It then goes into pre-production and... um, uh, often the, in fact, the shooting script is composed at that time to sort of, you know, shorten the amount of time that all this takes because it can be quite a long time. Um, and then um, those bodies inside and outside the studio may want to see what we call rough cuts or um, rough edits. Um, it's called material in the Soviet film industry, and it's not always clear whether it means, you know, literally rough cuts that have just kind of come off the, um, you know, hot from the camera or things that have been edited in some way. Um, but that doesn't seem to have happened necessarily with everything. It tended to be younger film directors who were sort of subjected to that kind of guidance. And then they make what we would call the director's cut. So it's the the thing that the director actually wanted to sort of sign off. And it's then reviewed in the studio and again beyond. And inside the studio, I think another thing which I realised, I mean, working on a lot of the sort of in-house material is that directors actually wouldn't have been pleased if there hadn't been anything that was controversial about their films. So I think one has to understand that discussion about films is actually a plus. That means people are interested in the film. It means they're engaging with the film. So the last thing you want is everybody sort of, not many people come along to your viewing because it's kind of a tidy but boring film, a grey film. Um, so that's bad news to begin with. Then there's a very boring... So there's kind of there's kind of an incentive to push the envelope in a certain way, right? Absolutely, definitely. And the other thing is that that incentive also comes from above because um, there's a strange paradox. I mean, I've got a new project now on historical films and I'm sort of exploring that paradox that we think of Brezhnev era culture as as highly ritualized. And with war films, I mean, you think there was a relation to war cult. And of course, that has to be ritualized. And actually, what you get is often people in the film industry saying, you know, please don't make yet another war film of the one of the sort we've seen so many of before. And, you know, um, what ended up as an extremely good film. So um, the Chronicle of a Dive Bomber, so by Noam Biedman. So the original discussions of that are, I mean, we've seen all this in 
British war films. I mean, this again, strange, you know, we've, you've seen these naval war films of the 1940s and we see exactly the same thing in this film. And it's not really about the fact that it's, you know, the wrong ideology. It's about the fact that, you know, you and I could see it coming. So it's very interesting to look at the path of that film because it goes from a film which is seen as being actually very conventional kind of borderline dull and actually turns into a very adventurous war film, which is partly because people in the studio are pushing for it to turn into that. So again, the vetting process is not necessarily always hostile. I mean, it's something which involved people, different level experienced filmmakers and actually people's coevals. I mean, people who are their own age kind of saying, you know, I think it would be better if you did it like that. And um, so I recently published an article in a Slavonic Review where I described it as in some ways not unlike the peer review process. A couple of the readers were really angry about this and they said, absolutely no comparison. <laughs> it it's, it sounds a lot like it to me. I mean, I've actually talked to other people about music and it sounded, you know, exactly like music in the, in the post-war period. Um, and it sounds completely like a peer review process <laughs> to me. A lot of, lot of. So here's a question, and and this is a question I have, but I'm going to include one that's been put in the chat. Uh, you talk about the the Len Film brand, and so the question along similar to that is that this person is wondering if you have a similar uh, uh, phenomenon in the Soviet Union that you say have in a couple of us other Eastern Bloc countries like Czechoslovakia, where you have a new wave, or in Yugoslavia, where you have a black wave, or other uh, renovation movements. Uh, do you have something similar going on in the Soviet Union? And does the Len film brand kind of speak to that? Well, Gus Kinor, so the film managers definitely thought there was something peculiar about Len Land film. And uh, they actually do say this. I was, to my great joy, I was able to find a quote from a Gus Quinault internal discussion saying, this studio keeps on with its very peculiar way of making films. So there is a sense in which it was certainly seen as new wave, you know, again, pushing boundaries very hard in the um, film industry itself. And so I think that's one of the things, I mean, there are films which are strikingly adventurous. And I mean, Alexia German is a famous director in that category, but Another director less well-known in the West who's like this would be Dinara Asanova. And Asanova is interesting because she is very much part of a sort of unofficial circle in her private life. I mean, she has an unofficial artist husband. There's a famous photo portrait of her by Slava Mikhailov, who's a major underground photographer. And she definitely leads an underground life, which involves a lot of alcohol consumption, um, uh, you know, of an inappropriate kind. I mean, even by the standards of the Soviet film industry and, you know, yet nevertheless, she was constantly kind of re-employed. And I mean, not 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 at the sense that she would you know, turn up drunk on set or anything like that. It was more what she did to recuperate after the sort of hard days um, work. But she used improvisation. I mean, this is a real, again, paradox because one of the things that we know about the Soviet film industry is the script is hugely important. They don't have a continuity person on set. They have a person who makes sure that the script is played as it was written. And yet, how do you manage to use improvisation in that situation? And my um, argument about this is that Dinarova got away with Dinara Asanova got away with it. Asanova got away with it because she was using children and she was able to say, 
oh, well, children don't like learning lines. Um, it produces these flat, boring performances. And so she would then sort of engage in improvisatory techniques that she would make people kind of, you know, well, make is the completely the wrong word. She would kind of encourage people to kind of get to grips with the character. So that, that's, that's the kind of case. I mean, somebody who's using techniques that are associated with the new wave. And so I think that you can call some Len film directors uh, definitely part of a new wave, a, a sort of socialist new wave, uh, socialist c- country's new wave. Yeah. What, what about what about the international uh, Len film within this is not only within the Soviet bloc, but also internationally, you know, it part of a, a, a emerging global film culture in mid-century. H- how did it fit? What is its relationship to that? Well, one source that I found was really interesting for looking at that was that when you were in pre-production, you were allowed to send via Gaskino to the state film archive a request for viewing. So you could you could send a list of films that you wanted to see when making the film. So I looked at quite a lot of those lists. I mean, they're there in the sort of correspondence of the studio with the Gaskino sort of in a police forward to the national to the state film archive are our kind of requests and they're very interesting. I mean, Dinara Asanova had a, a set of really very adventurous films for Woodpeckers Don't Get Headaches. And I sort of thought, oh, gosh, this is really interesting. And then exceptionally, an answer came back saying, we're not sending those films. But in the most case, in most cases, um, in, in the average case, the films actually were sent, sent. And I mean, one sort of anecdotal example is that when um, Joseph Heifetz is one of the senior filmmakers, so when he made... Married for the First Time, so that released in 1979, 1980, which is about literally about a, a woman, a middle-aged woman who gets married for the first time. It's quite a daring film title by the standard of the day. And it's quite an affecting film, but it's certainly very much in the neorealist tradition. But actually, one of the films on the list was Fellini's Casanova. So as you can see, I mean, they exploited the opportunity. I mean, people with leverage would just ask for the latest sensation and then it would be shown. And actually, most people in the studio would get to see it, certainly amongst filmmakers in the creative and in on the creative side of things. So they would watch it. So you have this this young crop, you have this international, you know, uh, new wave, different types of, of ways of dealing with film. Uh so what about the themes? What are some of the main themes that the Len film uh, productions dealt with? Yes, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I shall then move on to talk a bit about the look of the films, because I think that's also really important. So that if you like, the the, the themes are not that distinct from themes in other Soviet film studios, because one of the things you had to do was to sort of set, send what was called a perspective plan, which meant that you had to sort of, as it were, indicate how many boxes you ticked as a studio in acceptable categories or desirable categories of films. And there was all kinds of sort of shilly shattering which went round, all kinds of sort of adjusting the parameters that went on with that so that um, a film that was actually a, about some really quite troubling and problematic point of history would be called a revolutionary historical film. And the categories are quite broad, but at the same time, you know, it's quite easy to nominate some. I mean, the family, I mean, especially troubled family relationships. Then also about sometimes young people in institutions. Um, so when there are films about young people, they, they very often include a couple, at least a couple of school scenes. And that could be a point of conflict because Goskinor was actually quite worried if the, the films appeared to sort of show two conflicted and negative and aggressive relationship between teachers and pupils. And at the same time, of course, that's what 
filmmakers very often wanted to explore. They didn't want the kind of saintly teacher who was sort of out. They wanted the sort of, um, you know, terrible old sort of trout who kind of really doesn't understand young people. So it's partly about, about that. I think that one could also say that quite a lot of them are about adolescence, which is sort of not a term that figured in the Stalin era really very much at all. People seem to become sort of 45 immediately after they were 10. But I mean, there is a sort of really a, a discovery of Padraskovi Vozas, so the sort of, you know, the, that not literally teenage, I mean, the Russian for teenagers at the teenage, and it doesn't come in until a bit later than this, but definitely a sort of sense that there's a transitional age, um, which is important. So those would be various things. I think also the creativity, also the Soviet past is important. But as I say, you could find other studios who were also making similar films. So it's partly the looks that's distinctive. I mean, they had really very, very good camera operators. That's one of the things they had. Some of the leading camera operators, really the most high profile names in the USSR at this stage. Those are also really good filmmakers. And so at first, when I was kind of watching films by different directors, I sort of thought, well, I know I really like this film by this director, but less so this one. And I realized that I, often I was responding to the sort of, as it were, camera operators' eye in, in, in those. They had also very good film artist designers, so people who are the production designers, also very talented. Marina Azizian is, again, is somebody whom I've actually met and very interesting. She's also a theatre director. Um, so they had creative people on um, lots of fronts, as it were, as the Soviet violence would put it. And then that does produce a particular look. I mean, I watched a film a couple of days ago that was made by the Odessa Studios, and is you know highly rated. I mean, considered a sort of example of Ukrainian poetic cinema. It's a war film actually, and I was disappointed by how clunky it seemed actually in terms of the what was it shown in shot about the kind of montage, the edit. It seemed actually really quite humdrum compared with what I was used to to to, to watching. And it did cut both ways. I mean, you know, again, if I can be sort of forgiven at the more anecdotal end. I mean, I gave a talk about one of my favourite films in London and somebody from Central Asia came up and sort of, you know, offered himself as an informant afterwards. And he said, I used to help download the canisters when they were kind of flown in on, you know, the small, small plane to kind of, you know, show in our local, local village. And if it said Len Film, <laughs> we knew that it wasn't worth bothering to turn up that night because it just, <laughs> you know, if we knew it was Moss Film or it was Kazakh Film, it'd be something exciting. But these were just these... <laughs> These sort of, you know, these soulful films. So what is your what is your favorite film from this period? Well, I've been thinking quite hard about this. I mean, obviously, it's a question I've got asked more than once. I mean, I think I'd like to start with a film that almost got this whole project going. So I think the film that really sort of smacked me in the guts at that stage was Vitaly Melnikov's Mothers Got Married. So this film came out in 1969. It's got a script by Yuri Klepikov, who's one of the leading scriptwriters. And it's a film about one of exactly one of these troubled families. And the title, So Mothers Got Married, actually did create problems in the processing because, you know, in Gus Kino, they were saying Irina Kokorova, who was a sort of senior editor there, she said, does that mean she wasn't married before? She's got a teenage son. And indeed, it does actually seem likely that she wasn't married before and she does indeed have a teenage son. And the teenage son is the whole focus of the film because he doesn't like the fact that he meets his stepfather kind of more or less, you know, kind of over supper back in the, in the family apartment. Um, and 
it's quite clear that the father's family are from a very different social background. So kind of that sort of social class in the Soviet context is actually also a taboo subject. And this is very delicately handled. I mean, in a way that's absolutely perceptible to people who know the circumstances and at the same time might evade somebody who was kind of, you know, watching it for different reasons. And the film is very widely watched, actually. And one of the things I think we have to remember is that Soviet film was actually shown in its own time on TV. And so this was a film that actually was shown on TV fairly soon after it was released. And that was how uh, Georgi Danilia, so a very well-known film director, originally from a Georgian background, who made one of the major films of the Thor era. So um, I, I, I stride around Moscow. So he kept, got up, caught up with this film and wrote an article in... Um, the Soviet film journals, the East Coast for Kino or Cinema Art. And he writes that this is really a terrific film. And so it appeared, appealed to different levels. And, I, you know, if one says art house, I mean, people might have the same reaction as that Central Asian teenager did to the film canisters. But I'd really like to emphasise that these are, you know, great involving films. So that I showed in Oxford and, you know, was, you know, really acclaimed by the, the public who saw it. Melikov was able to come again. He's still alive. Thank heavens, um, you know, at the age of, I think, 93. Um, pretty amazing. But there are many others. I mean, I I, I love Asanova's work. Um, I, you know, Yuri German, at a, uh, sorry, Alexia German at a different level. Um, so the first film that I kind of watched from the studio, I think, was actually his, uh, My Friend Ivan Lapshin, which was an absolutely wonderful film and kind of really stood out at the period it was made. Viktor Sakolov's work I like. I mean, so uh, A Day of Sunshine and Rain is actually a, you know, a very European-style film about two boys just wandering through the city. I mean, there's just such a lot. Um, I you know... I kept it down to 15 films that I look at in detail um, in the book, but I mean, there would be so many more. And I mean, there are more of them that I actually mention, mention in passing as well. And, and, and finally, looking at, you know, like, like a lot of your work, you're looking at a particular uh, case, you know, Len film in this case. How does, how do you understand this period of the 1970s different than you understood it before you started working on this project? I think one of the things is I was sort of prejudiced against the Brezhnev era because that's when I first visited as a student and it really did seem exceptionally drab, really quite lackluster in all kinds of ways. I mean, um, a year in the Soviet provinces at that stage, I mean, there was a joke at that stage, you know, first prize a year in Veronish, second prize two years in Veronish. Um, and I'm so glad that I had it and I made you know, friends there. I mean, I was glad to kind of get the opportunity to travel outside the provinces and go to Moscow and Leningrad also. But the thing that saved me actually was the the cinema. I mean, um, watching things. I mean, the local arts world there was not terribly exciting. The symphony orchestra existed, which is, you know, creditable, et cetera. The town is one of many towns of a sort of million population, so big by Western standards, but kind of standard by those of the USSR. And so the... Concerts weren't all that exciting. The theatre was not so fantastically exciting, but you could see these wonderful films. I mean, including, you know, factory clubs. I saw Stalker in a factory club, Stalker, Tarkovsky, and then sort of saw other films in Moscow. So I had the sort of sense that it was largely a drab period. I had no idea at that stage about how the films were made and whether there was discussion about them. I think to discover actually what a vibrant argumentative culture it was, was really quite rewarding so that... The production process was 
if I say as interesting as watching the films, no, no, but it was nearly as interesting as watching the films. So do you get do you get a sense that did you walk away with uh, a sense that there was much more dynamism than you previously thought? Yes, I would say there was. And uh, again, I sort of didn't quite come to um, the film industry with the sort of model that everything happens uh, in terms of exit velocity, because my argument with the, the term censorship is because it's a familiar term in the West and we know about, you know, Jane Russell's cleavage and, you know, bits of footage having to be cut out and also the British Board of Film Censors. And um, so that's what happens at the end of the process. And the Soviet film management process is so deeply imbricated in those films right from the beginning that it's 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 a much broader kind of situation that we're dealing with and a, a more complex situation. And I think I probably, I mean, no, I, I, I sort of knew to some extent that it wasn't going to be sort of directors as heroes pitched against kind of, uh, you know, idiotic bureaucrats. I mean, because it's clear in the literary world, it didn't necessarily function like that. And I mean, certainly I was well aware that in the children's publishing industry, there were some extremely sophisticated editors and they were doing a lot for their writers. I think the other thing is what I would now say is, I mean, that I suppose I came on this as from the point of view that actually late modernism, and I think that the, the films that are being produced in this studio and actually Georgia, some Moss film titles, some some in the Baltic, some in Ukraine, particularly before 1970, would fall into the category of late modernism. And late modernism is about constraints. So I remember a talk that Christine Brooke Rose, so the sort of um, new wave um, ang anglophone, but francophone, so she's between those two worlds writer. She gave in Oxford uh, many years ago, and she entitled it An Artist Constraints. And she was actually making the point that constraints are important, that they are what make the art. And I suppose I sort of thought, well, if that's true about late modernism, why should it not be true about Soviet late modernism? And there can be constraints that are irritating, but there are also ones that are kind of accepted and self-imposed. Was there a, um, I mean, there was a hierarchy of studios, of course, but was the, in the sense of, if you couldn't get a film, a, could you, could you get a more, um, challenging film made at a smaller studio versus, you know, some of the more, you know, bigger ones, it, it was, it, there was more control or the, the limits, the constraints were bigger in terms of what, what you could uh, produce. Yes, that's right. So um, it sometimes happened that, you know, really very marginal films, I mean, you know, in the official quality sense, standing in the establishment occasionally produced amazing things so that, I mean, Moldova film is one one case in point. I mean, there was, you know, one leading Soviet director in the artistic sense that they worked with for a while. Um, Parajanov is um, an interesting case because he works in several film studios, so he can't work in Kiev after this um, kind of uh, uh, period of imprisonment. I mean, he's arrested for homosexual activity um, and there's a sort of complicated backstory, which is to do with his contact with people who were classified as Ukrainian nationalists and a large scale investigation. He gets caught up in their campaign to smear various people who are associates with Ivan Zuba. Um, but anyway, uh, he definitely couldn't return to Kiev. And then he, you know, he made a film um, in uh, Yerevan, um, then a film in Tbilisi. So actually, um, Georgia film is one example, and to some extent, Armenia is as well. These places are not just beyond the center, but I think also they have a culture that's relatively impenetrable because um, definitely Russian is the lingua franca. I mean, I'm really looking forward um, to finding out about whether the um, debate in the 
um, Georgian film studios, uh, um, assuming it's still available, um, ever goes over into Georgian, because if it did, that was a kind of guarantee that almost no Russian was going to be able to understand it. I mean, unfortunately, I have difficulties with understanding Georgian hard as I try as well. But um, I mean, you know, just even the sort of mechanical thing, um, Ukraine, the um, discussion shifts between Ukrainian and Russian, sometimes in the context of the same discussion of, a, of the same film. And then in Latvia, it tends to be um, in one language or the other, but with parallel translation. So um, that would give you some sort of idea about the um, the distance of the film culture from those bureaucrats at the centre who um, probably don't know the local language. So they had their own bureaucrats who were supposed to provide a line of control so that their own Guskino and their own um, central committees of the Communist Party who were supposed to um, look at material. But there's a very famous case with Abuladze about how they made that in the two hours of TV that they were allowed to make without control from Moscow. And it'd be interesting to know how far back that goes. That was Katriona Kelly. Katriona Kelly is Senior Research Fellow at Trinity College, University of Cambridge. She's the author of many books on Russian history and culture, including, amongst others, Comrade Pavlik, The Rise and Fall of a Soviet Boy Hero, the prize-winning Children's World, Growing Up in Russia, 1890-1991, and St. Petersburg, Shadows of the Past. Her new book is Soviet Art House, Landfilm Studio under Brezhnev, published by Oxford University Press. Okay, well, we just... Um... You know, listen, we just had this interview with Katrina, and uh, since I'm, you know, I've already outed myself as a as a non-lover of film, perhaps you guys should start and <laughs> and tell me what some of your takeaways from this interview. I think one of the most interesting moments for me was the conversations you guys had about constraints and how constraints is what makes art. And uh, Katrina... Um, mostly focused on censorship as a kind of constraint. But as I was listening to the interview, I was thinking about all sorts of other constraints that um, can be productive for making a film. For example, the fact that uh, Len Film Studio was probably, and many other Soviet studios really, uh, had lots of financial constraints and that led to a lot of experimentation, both in camera work, in script writing, and in directing, in cast. Uh, one of my one of the first workshops I've um, taken on film was with the, it was a summer workshop with the uh, New School of Cinema in Saint Petersburg, Škola Novo Kino, and um, the person who taught who gave the workshop was a cameraman and he was telling us all sorts of things they had to develop in order to shoot movies mm -hmm. just because they didn't have the necessary equipment right or uh right they didn't have the the right lens so he had to use like glass etc um just like random glass that he found somewhere you know in a dumpster and that's like one of the major figures in Soviet and Russian, um, you know, um, film. No, I actually, I actually have comments about the constraints because I, I, I find it really interesting too. First off, one of the things that I was, I, I, sh I shouldn't say I was surprised by, but I find interesting um, is that 
there were financial constraints on Soviet filmmaking, and there is a there is financial incentive that they wanted films that I mean essentially had viewers that somehow had some sort of you know return. Um, I don't know if it was it was so based like you know in the West on ticket sales, but it seemed to be a factor that they wanted to earn you know to generate some some money from from these films. Um, but the, the, the thing I also found about the constraints and which I, I think is it going with what you said about it, their productiveness is at one point she comments that Katharina comments that, um, filmmakers would don't want, I mean, filmmakers want people to engage the film. They want people to criticize it because this means that a people care and B, that they are pushing the envelope. So I really think that this dance uh, between, say, quote-unquote censorship, broadly conceived, and the artist is a really interesting one that, you know, produces, you know, censor when we think of censorship, we tend to think of it how it dulls expression and dulls art. Um, but I think here we also see it can, it can help produce you know, innovative ways of creating art or, or exp innovative ways of expression that, um, that might not be there without those constraints and without that scrutiny. And particularly to like culture, it creates a culture, um, like this high level of bureaucracy that you see and that, that, uh, Catriona Kelly was describing and Len film creates this intense competition, this high pressure, this need to get published. Like I, I've been reading this, these two books, at least I just started them. One was Camera Naijait by Dina Rubina, like the camera, I don't know how to, like approaches. Uh, and then the other one was Prose by Davlatov. And he was, and both of them talk about like this, like, deep separation between like the different art fields like Dina Rubino was talking about whenever uh this director was trying to adapt her book into a movie and about how uh it was basically like the she as an artist basically got stomped out of the book and they have to um the factors that are introduced in creating this film like is known to all of the other directors too. Like the film, yeah, I guess that was my point that that constraints create culture uh, that people can then connect with in a way that would be different if there weren't if it was just free form. The main the main constraint in in Hollywood is how much money you're gonna be able to make with your movie, right? That's very different from like say when you're. Uh, when, when say like the the censor is saying oh don't make um another war movie like that <laughs> even though mm -hmm. like he's supposed to tell you probably the opposite right and mm -hmm. yeah i guess that just supports your um your point um sean that you know it can lead to unexpected and surprising um art uh say like you know when when Catriona was talking about the that war movie that like starts as dull and then becomes very adventurous towards the end right that wouldn't be possible if at the beginning there was no such constraint as you have to make 
a certain number of war movies per, like, I don't know, year or whatever. And not to mention that if you don't produce, if you don't have content that's getting published, then, I mean, to consider too the less romantic side of it that you were still in the Soviet Union and, and you needed to, like, meet a certain standard of productivity. And if you didn't, you can get... um uh, accused of like tuniadstva, like Davladov was talking about that, how he got kicked out of his apartment because no one was publishing his work because he was considered like an unproductive member. And of course, this was in literature, but I maybe it's too much to presume that that would also happen in, in film, but that's just like the space that they were working in. I really also thought the... Um the 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 role of say the party uh and its relationship to creatives to the artists or the the filmmakers and the people who work on it uh really interesting too because it's clear or it's clear to me the more i i learn about this that there's no like you can't really separate the party so much from the people who create, because they're all also party members and they're discussing these things within a context of party meetings. And it's, it's, I, I don't, it's a different relationship that I imagined as, I think I said this in an interview, like uh, the party kind of imposing itself or opposing its will from outside. And more interestingly too, and I've seen this in other contexts in, in, this, in the Soviet system, where a lot of what, it was a lot about what you couldn't do they didn't tell you what to do. They told you what you couldn't do. And then you had to negotiate around what you couldn't do, right? And find some sort of way to, to you know, express yourself in the way that you were happy with. Um, so that, that whole dynamic of the role of the party, uh, I found a really interesting thing. And, and how, how the complexities that went into getting a, a film from the idea, which she said, you know, it could be an idea on the back of an envelope <laughs> to, to an actual film. It was a really long process um, that, that, you know, has a lot of layers going on. It's really interesting that you say that because this is making me remember how Kelly was also talking about that adolescence was like a major theme that she saw throughout uh the movies that she was watching and maybe that possibly reflects that state of like Soviet psychological exploration or maybe late Soviet psychological exploration of that like trying to explore the no, you know, that boundary that you're describing. I had that explained to me in another interview I did about the role of youth in films and what made youth a, um, a, a subject to push the envelope and to deal with complexity and to deal with conflict is because they were, you know, quote unquote, Soviet people in formation. So they weren't expected to be already refined, right? They were expected to have conflict and like, you know, regrets or mistakes. Uh, and so that allowed some leeway to get into these themes that, that these films address. Um, I have a thought, but it's not connected to what you just said. Uh, I'm not sure if it's if it's um, I'm not sure if it's a main takeaway, um, but 
I was interested in this conversation about uh, movie lists that <laughs> directors oh. directors uh, ordered, right? And uh, <laughs> how often the movies that they um, apparently needed to see in order to uh, make their movie <laughs> were completely unrelated, <laughs> like the uh, Fellini's Casanova, um, and I. I bet like many others and uh, I, I just started like picturing in my head, picturing um, everyone working at the Lynn Film Studio gathering together in order to <laughs> to see that classic or that new movie that just came out, um, but ordinary citizens didn't have access to it. Um, and what a different world we live in today, you know? Just like this idea that there are these, uh, you know, art, that there is this art, that there are these movies that are freely available in some places and completely, like, it's hard to get a hand on in, like, the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. And, you know, it's not like porn or, I don't know, violent movies mm -hmm. or anything like that. It's just, you know the wrong <laughs> the wrong coming from the wrong country <laughs> with the wrong political right. uh system no that that is you know that's fascinating to me on a couple of levels a this whole idea where the way i see these directors or these filmmakers put giving their lists of i need to see these films it's kind of like also gaming the system right because you're like okay i i need yeah, you you get this, you have this list, okay, they give you a couple of them or whatever, however many. And then of course everyone is shows up in your, you know, in the institution shows up for the screening of the film. So it is a way to like use the system against the system, which is which is an aspect of Soviet life that I find really fascinating of using the oppor the opportunities and the structures that the system creates and using them for your own means uh, is a really innovative, and, and also speaks to another thing I like is this do-it-yourself culture. Like you were just saying a few minutes ago, Rusana, about the, the, the cinematographer who had to find the piece of glass, <laughs> right? It just produces, a, an, it's a, to me, it speaks to a like, it reminds me here going to nostalgia of you know, punk rock days, like of this DIY culture. That seems like Catriona Kelly was describing Len films like in that very light, like especially compared to Moss films, who she said was twice its size and was like used often like with political incentives. I mean, this interview really <laughs> inspires me to want to go look and really explore the Len film discography to, to see like to really see that experimentation. If you ever find your way to St. Petersburg, I highly recommend a theater play that was um, recently made by a group of um, a, f um, a group of friends. Um, they're an art collective in St. Petersburg called Vakruk Dokola, and they made a like a, a documentary play about female workers of Lend Film. So what they did basically is what an anthropologist would do. They went in and um, collected interviews. Uh, they talked to all these uh, women who 
used to work and are still working at Lenfilm. And then they created a play out of it. It's called Bilet v Kino. And what I found most fascinating is that, so this art collective is all women, four women. And they went in with this idea that, you know, um, these women were repressed. There were these grand masters and all the credit was given to them. And the, these, um, you know, women who would, you know, occupy different roles within um, the studio, you know, um, they were kind of robbed because they were not often not given credit, etc. But then after talking to them, what they found was at was kind of the opposite, that these women sort of didn't mind um, taking secondary roles uh, and they because they didn't see what they were doing as an individual as an individual right. um, affair kind of, right? So they were collectively producing a movie, a film, right? And it didn't matter who was the grandmaster and who was, I don't know, making, designing costumes, etc. And mm-hmm. and that in in and that in a way also transformed, I guess, how like my friends were thinking of themselves as artists today. So, you know, it kind of went both ways. Like they learned something something from these uh, women and that uh, influenced the way that they see themselves as artists in Russia today. So I don't know, highly recommend that play. Instead of seeing themselves as oppressed, they, they, they were liberated if you look at it through their own eyes. That's really cool. Well, I guess it gave them a certain kind of perspective or um, a way to reflect on you know, feminism and how we understand it today. And like that, if it wasn't, if it wasn't, if the relationship between men and women back then were not as like a progressive today would want it, it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, it doesn't mean, right, that necessarily that these women were oppressed or that those women, um, wanted it otherwise maybe they didn't and it's also fine and it seemed like those women were okay with that which kind of i guess like (laughs) um was very provocative the the final thing i wanted to discuss with you because this interview is the last and last in a series that i i organized about the 1970s. And and I don't know how many of the interviews both of you have listened to, but I know you've listened to some of them. And so I just kind of, one of the goals of this series was to, A, for me personally, to learn more about the period, but second, to also, you know, reevaluate my, the assumptions that I had about the period. And I'm kind of curious, you know, to hear what kind of what what are some of the conclusions or takeaways that you have about the 1970s based on what you've learned yeah do you mean in in this podcast or in this entire series in the entire series or generally you know based on what you know or what you don't know or i i mean i could start if you want um so you know, I'll just start and, and you guys can respond. Um, one of the things that I learned is, well, let me just start with my assumptions, right? 
my assumptions were, okay, this is a period where it's there's this whole overarching stagnation. It's a very boring, empty, uh, drab. You know, all of these these images of kind of gray simplicity, there's no dynamism, etc. Right? It's just people muddling along. Uh, also, the Soviet Union as a, and this is, of course, thanks to the great American propaganda machine when I was growing up, the Soviet Union as a closed society, as a society that's isolated from the rest of the world, right? It's, a, you know, to the point of being hermetically sealed. And what I've really learned from this series is actually the opposite of a lot of that, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, some of these things didn't exist in terms of the predictability or drabness. I've also heard this too, but that it's a far more complex period and contradictory period than I assumed. That on the one hand, you have this international engagement, particularly with the third world, which I find incredibly fascinating, but also constraints about who has access to that engagement. Um, in terms of creativity and art, it seems far more dynamic than I previously assumed. Uh, so I, it causes me, you know, because the reason is, is that when people think of, inevitably think of the Soviet Union's collapse, they think of, okay, where did the beginning of the end start? And the 1970s, is seen as one of those periods, right? The late 70s in particular is seen as the beginning of the end. And now, after talking to people about who, who've studied this period in a variety of different ways, I don't agree with that anymore. I, I don't think that we can draw that straight line from a period of the 1970s and say, okay, this is when it began to go bad, or this is when it began to quote unquote collapse. Uh, I think I don't, I, I don't, I can't really buy that anymore. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I think of the 1970s, what I, the first thing that, I mean, it's hard for me to get out of my American 1970s brain with like the bright colors and, and exploration, experimentation, drugs, you know, and like, that's what was going on here. So then whenever I imagine the Soviet 1970s, I imagine like black and white barred music, you know, kind of a more like punk uh, way of living. And I think actually through this series and, and what I've learned, I guess, the past couple months is that I guess it's actually helped me understand it and the opposite way in terms of normalizing that way of life and not looking at it as punk, but just being like, this is another way to live. Like I've learned how to believe in that, like exit the kind of comparative vision and just believe in the lifestyle itself. And I think that's helped me um, to, I mean, I guess that was like a, uh, more of a mental block that I was having that I think continuous exposure to the period has helped me get over, if that makes sense. I'm sorry, guys, I didn't have the image of the 1970s as <laughs> Well, because, you know, you're not, I mean, I can speak for myself. I, I said the success of the American propaganda machine, so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I certainly didn't see it as drab. I, I thought it was punk. I thought it was like, I guess, 
there was this vicious mm-hmm. tone to it for me. Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I understand, like, the American propaganda machine and everything. And I guess, like, for me, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, what I've been hearing from my parents and other adults was actually, you know, uh, maybe a slightly idealistic image of the Soviet period. I don't know if it was about the 70s, maybe for my parents, yeah, because that's when they were young and graduated from college, etc. Um, but yeah, like 70s and 80s was this like time when they didn't carefree <laughs> time where people didn't have to worry about money, having a roof over one's head, um, providing for the family, like everything was taken care of and you could like go, I don't know, engage in <laughs> do-it-yourself hobbies, <laughs> go, go, yeah, go fix your car in the garage or I don't know, um, attend an underground rock concert. Um, but definitely listening to these interviews was very educational for me uh, and inspired me to um, go uh, read some of these books, especially like uh, Alexei's book, because I feel like it's directly relevant to my research. Um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to virtually talk to these people through this podcast, I guess. And maybe it's the stories that I heard too that that made it feel more, I guess I used the word vicious earlier, so I'll use it again, but a lot of uh, complaints and like uh, problems. You hear, I've heard a lot about the problems of the, 60s 70s and 80s and not so much about the positive aspects i mean i don't want to paint a rosy picture of the soviet period but i guess like what i was trying to say margaret is that all those complaints say about not having the right produce um in this in the supermarket or um i don't know reading the news like about (laughs) harvests (laughs) that are the same year after year, all of that was overshadowed by the complete meltdown of society and, like, all institutions and financial systems and everything that, like, followed suit. So, like, when I was growing up, like, what people had to, like, go through at the time was, like, way, way, way worse. So, like, in retrospect, I guess, like, people know idealized or maybe reminiscented about you know it wasn't as bad it turned out all of a sudden you know what i mean well thank you thank you very much for for your comments on that you know i've been i've been uh you know thinking about this question of like what to take away from this series and um i'd I'd like for listeners who who listen to all of it or some of it i'd love to hear what people take away from this um you know the I'd love to know what people take away from, you know, this period uh, after learning a bit more about it. Um, you know, I certainly, I mean, I, I, like I said before, like, I don't know much about the 1970s. I didn't study it. I don't read a lot about it, um, though I am now. Uh, so I just learned a lot that flew in the face of a lot of assumptions that, that I had just out of 
ignorance. So, well, as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you want to do us a big favor, uh, please take a moment to share the podcast on social media. Tell your friends and family about it. Uh, this really helps us spread, you know, it helps spread the word and gets us more listeners. You could also, if you want to do us a real solid writer review on iTunes or whatever the Apple podcast, whatever it's called now, uh, this really helps more people get exposed to it. So please, you know, take a moment to do that if you have the time. And also, as I said, you know, if you want to let us know what you think of the show, please drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at the srbpodcast.org uh, contact page and let us know what you think. Uh, and as always, we'd love to have your support. So uh, the SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and we do not want any commercials or paywalls. So we rely on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep this thing going. So please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and become a monthly patron by joining the SRB table of ranks. And just another reminder, um, going, we're going on hiatus. We'll be back sometime in January, February 2022. So until next year, bye. Never in my time